Hey listeners, I know you'll love this exclusive offer from our friends at Top Resume. For a limited time, you'll get 25% off any resume writing package. These packages match you with an industry expert resume writer to craft a resume built to pass the AI applicant filters and impress people on the other side. Use code HIGHERED25 at topresume.com slash resume dash writing to immediately improve your number one tool in getting that next great higher ed job. Welcome to the Higher Ed Jobs Podcast. I'm Andy Hibble, the Chief Operating Officer and one of the co-founders of Higher Ed Jobs. And I'm Kelly Sherwin, the Director of Editorial Strategy. Today, we're fortunate to be speaking with Justin Zackel, one of our regular contributors to Higher Ed Jobs. In addition to being a well-respected writer for us, Justin is also a communications specialist at Slippery Rock University and has more than 12 years experience in higher education, communications, and marketing. Thank you for joining us today, Justin. Thank you. And I, and I love that Higher Ed Jobs has a podcast now. And I always say that sometimes, you know, I may not have two minutes to read an article, but I always seem to find time to have 20 minutes or a half hour to listen to a podcast, whether I'm folding laundry, mowing the lawn or shoveling snow. It's a great format to share a lot of ideas. That's a great place to start and see for folks who are listening out there. We tweet us at Higher Ed Jobs or drop us an email at podcast at Higher Ed Jobs. We'd love to know what you're doing while listening to the podcast, and uh, we'd love to report back to you and uh, give folks who are struggling to have some time to listen to the podcast some ideas of how to do that. Justin, you mentioned we might not always have time to read articles. So actually, today we're going to be talking about one of your most recent articles. Um, It is called Working Toward Productive Conflict and Away from Groupthink. So before we dive into talking about you know, some strategies and tips and techniques and all the wonderful information you describe in the article, I think it'd be good for our listeners to kind of talk a little bit more about what the concepts are. When we hear the word conflict, oftentimes I think of something that is negative or bad. So can you talk about the differences between productive conflict and the opposite, which is unhealthy or unproductive conflict? So productive conflict, I mean, you want to have dialectical conversations and not you're just getting into having opposing ideas where you're just focusing on um, imposing your opinion on somebody to try to win an argument. You want to try to reach a solution that's uh, agreeable and advantageous for, for both parties involved. And, you know, this sounds maybe a little bit like a game business game theory, but in an organizational setting, uh, when you, you know, department meeting, you know, you want to be able to hash out ideas and go against the maybe what would be the assumptions of the group and find ideas that are synthesized from an antithesis and a, th- and a thesis argument. That's where these, these great solutions happen by talking through them in conversations. And that's what I really mean by productive conflict. An unproductive conflict would be when conversations are arguing over frivolous matters, resorting to sarcasm or abusive language. That could be uh, harmful for um, any, any department or organization. But you know, productive is when they really see these rich ideas come from maybe opposing uh, opinions. Thank you, Justin. I don't know if there's anything more you want to explain on why healthy conflict is important in academia. Well, I would just say also that in a higher education, you know, we're supposed to be known as these uh, factories or storehouses of knowledge. And uh, that's how ideas and knowledge is created through these dialectical conversations. And uh, they're, they're not just, they just don't come out of thin air. They come out of having this uh, confronting opposing ideas. And a lot of you know, scientists are trying to prove themselves wrong. And that's how they do that by experimenting and trying things out. 
And that's where you get this productive output from conflict. I just want to elaborate a little bit more on, on groupthink. In your article, you made reference to psychologist Irving Janis, who first used the term groupthink back in 72. And he observed how intelligent groups of people, often all having similar backgrounds, made poor decisions from not considering opinions of outside groups. So I know you kind of referenced in the department, you might be hashing out ideas and how important it is to not just conform and go along with what everyone is thinking. But then also you go on to say that groupthink is not necessarily a a bad thing. It can bring out some good ideas. So can you kind of elaborate on when groupthink could be a constructive matter in, in the workplace? I think when you have cohesiveness uh, within a group, uh, that can also lend itself to conformity. But having a, a group that, ha- that shares the same values, that can be a bad thing because you make a lot of assumptions. But when those values are aligned together around the mission of the organization, now that's to also say that you know, there's not one way to do something, okay? So you all ha- share those values and, and that's why the way you interpret uh, groupthink. Uh, groupthink, in, in, in most senses, is a, uh, a pejorative term. But if you interpret it the way of sharing values and the path to a productive output from groupthink would be consensus around the mission of the organization. I think what's interesting with that is the idea that a group decision is finding a set of shared values that govern an institution like a faith-based institution that you referred to in the article, or even a set of criteria or events that define success to any sort of program that a department may, may forward. Those seem like great things to find a set of, if you will, groupthink or shared feelings that this is what we value, or this is how we're going to define success because it gives us an ability to measure the productivity and the direction for any individual decision that may come along. It seems difficult, though, whether it's a, the mission of the, of the group or what defines success, groupthink would be when a leader basically has an idea and everybody goes along with it because they think exactly like that leader. Yeah, and that's the conditions of groupthink that uh, Irving Janus presented in, in 1972. And uh, a number of authors have uh, referenced his work, including where I became familiar with groupthink from uh, Adam Grant, the uh, Wharton School uh, organizational psychologist who written in the book Originals. He had a whole chapter about groupthink, and he referenced Janus in his original study, referenced uh, President John F. Kennedy in the Bay of Pigs invasion. He had an insular cabinet that never challenged his misguided instincts uh, about that invasion. And that's one of the symptoms of groupthink is when you have a group that is structured in a way where you know, nobody sees a need to speak up because you all share those same values, but also it could be the character of the leader that doesn't provide the psychological safety for the people with dissenting views to speak up because they might be uh, they feel they might be punished socially or within the organization if they uh, they challenge an authority figure. Or, or in Kennedy's case, he might not even have a seat at the table, even though you're in the cabinet like the vice president did in that instance, where the vice president's opinion didn't even matter to Kennedy because he didn't have a seat at the table for those sorts of decisions, which from the article, having groupthink that also excludes people who would appear to be decision makers from even having a seat at the table, 
is a, another risk from what I understood. It's interesting to me, like it's legendary how much Johnson was used as a prop and then just discarded in that instance. Kennedy could care less what he thought. Maybe taking a step back, let's look at the symptoms and the conditions of groupthink and let's lay those out for, for the listeners to kind of have a, a more solid foundation before we further expand on the idea of groupthink. When most people think of groupthink, they think of a homogeneous group, and this gets into diversity. So you don't have, you have people on a group that share the similar background, values, and they are not representing people that are not a part of the group. And you, you have this conformity just based on um, everyone thinking alike. There's no diversity of thought. So they may not see a reason to speak up to challenge a dissenting view because they all agree, okay? And this is what Irving Janus refers to as uh, high cohesiveness, okay? But you also have another condition of groupthink, uh, which is more structural in nature. And this is when you have a leader that's, that's not impartial and a leader that forces their own opinion on the group without allowing for those dissenting views to be heard or to have those dialectical conversations. Uh, and this is where we get into you know, psychological safety within a group. Uh, you know, somebody doesn't feel like they, they, they want to speak up, but they feel like they can't. And the third uh, condition or symptom of groupthink would be more in a situational context. I think of this now, especially during the, you know, the pandemic, and uh, a lot of departments are stretched thin, a lot of staffs are short, Groups feel like they're stressed, you know, there's, there's burnout, there's no time or resources or energy to challenge decisions. They're, they're just more passive and they just resign themselves to go along with the group. They lose the desire to speak up. It's not that they, they can't speak up, but they just don't want to speak up. So those are like the three major conditions for when groupthink presents itself. And I think as a, as a leader of an organization or a department, you want to be able to provide an environment where your subordinates have psychological safety, they're willing to and motivated to speak up, and uh, all these uh, views are, are, are considered and accounted for, and you have those rich conversations among your, your coworkers. One of the things I love about your writing, Justin, is you really provide some actionable advice, some tips. And you did that in, in this article as well. So after you describe what you know, kind of what the issues are, I was wondering if you could actually provide some advice on how to improve this functional conflict in the workplace. When I uh, approached this topic from the context of higher education, you know, I was challenged by, by thinking people in higher education, are they more susceptible to, to groupthink than maybe other industries? And um, you get to thinking about academic departments Okay, you know, you have these um, very specialized disciplines, and the, the people, the the faculty, uh, have similar values, similar uh, credentialing and backgrounds. You know, not everybody has the means to earn a PhD, and you think that 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 would be another symptom of groupthink. But I think the academic nature of these departments, where they're trained to challenge the status quo, uh, as, as I mentioned. Uh, scientists are always trying to prove themselves wrong. And uh, I, I just think that groupthink is less of, of an issue for 
um, higher education on the faculty side. Now you may say, well, well, I have a dysfunctional department and you should see the group thing that goes on. But yeah, there's, there's always going to be exceptions. But generally speaking, and compared to maybe other organizations, I would say that higher education is not as susceptible. And you have things like academic freedom and shared governance that are more prominent in our industry compared to others. And also you have the, the, the trope of the uh, eccentric professor, you know, it seems like every department has that professor who's uh, resisting convention and, and is uh, challenging authority. But uh, I think for the most part, uh, uh, Robin Henninger, who I quoted in my piece, uh, she said that there are egos in all workplaces, but faculty, because of their specialties and expertise, bring ego to the table, which, which sometimes prevents groupthink. We're bold enough to say, I don't agree with something, or I think we should look at this differently. So I, I think that in academic departments, you might have less of a, a susceptible to groupthink. Now, in the administrative staff side, I think it's just as likely to have groupthink present itself compared to other industries. I'm glad you brought up that quote. I think we can all agree that organizational culture matters and being engaged and valued within that culture is important. So Justin, you talked about Grant um, and you referenced Grant and he, he said people shouldn't be punished for dissenting views, nor should they be expected to conform to the culture. Rather, they should be empowered to contribute to the culture. And I strongly believe that a cultural fit in higher ed is important and it's definitely important for someone who is a job seeker. So do you have any advice for a job seeker who is in an interview how they could potentially evaluate what that culture may be to see if they are embracing the productive conflict? Yeah, I think that, you know, cultural fit sometimes is a bad word. A more appropriate term, I think, is cultural contribution. And and this is using Adam Grant's term, uh, whereas cultural fit sounds like you're trying to conform to the norms and the organization. You want to be able to find ways that you can uniquely contribute to that culture and to that institution. I, I think, and I really like that difference between fit and culture. And you're not joining an affinity group. You're not looking for a culture that you're going to be able to work amongst big Beatles fans like yourself. What you're looking for is a, a chance to perform the work that you do, that you love doing, and you do well. And you're being set up for success to be able to do that in the best environment possible. In football, if you're a passing quarterback that just stays in the pocket, the worst place for you to go is to go play on a team that likes to have a lot of quarterback motion and a lot of quarterback running. So if you're you're looking at a team with a, a fit where you need to work within that team and you need the team to operate with productive conflict, that is an important evaluator of whether or not you're going to succeed in that position. And maybe that, at the end of the day, fit is the shorthand that a lot of folks use for that. But fit isn't really like, oh, I, I can fit in here. It's let's call this for what it is. What are my chances for success at this institution in this role? Is the culture being set up to work for me or against me? And Justin, kind of off of that, like the idea that there's unproductive conflict, how much is tolerable if you're a job seeker in that instance? And what do you mean by how much is is I think basically saying if you see some unproductive conflict, like I want to have a lot of unproductive conflict on whether or not you should use Starbucks or Dunkin' Donuts coffee. I don't want to see that on whether or not we should be funding the type of research I'd like to have. Oh, we don't, we don't fund quantitative-based research. We only fund qualitative-based research, but I'm a quantitative researcher. I want productive conflict around that to get a better process on that debate. But if, if you're talking about unproductive conflict, 
I can tolerate that as you're arguing about that which coffee should be in the break room. Are you looking for a great resume? Because for a limited time, our friends at Top Resume are giving you 25% off any resume writing package. Use code HIGHERED25 at topresume.com slash resume dash writing to immediately improve your number one tool in getting that next great higher ed job. You know, like we talked earlier, Janice or whoever said, if someone is, is afraid to speak up, then that's personally, that's not the type of organization I would want to be in. If I see the leadership team is kind of, you know, forcing everyone to go along with what they're thinking, that wouldn't be a good fit for me. So as a job seeker, how do I kind of vet to see if they, they are valuing functional conflict? I, I keep saying functional conflict, but sorry, in my, in my class, we talk about functional and dysfunctional. So productive versus unproductive. Yeah. <laughs> When you're having conversations on a job interview or even informal conversations with people within an institution, you want to be able to detect language that is more absolute, like this is, this is the way we do things around here. There's a clear distinction between right and wrong, and there's not an accepting of another way to reach a different solution. There's a lot of institutions talk about, you know, oh, we're student-centered and we're putting the student first, but there's a number of ways you can do that. And if you're talking to leaders who are, this is the way that we serve our students, well, there's a number of ways you can arrive at that. And I think that a lot of departments might be very protective of the ground that they gained, whereas they might not be accepting of somebody coming in and finding a different path and gaining new ground, but still reaching the same destination. I think this is a different question for you, Justin, and a great place to end. What can someone do to combat groupthink? I think that the best way to approach this is to not get caught up on the egos in the room or the type of leader that you have. I think you should always frame your work around the mission of the institution. And then if you have something to stand on, like the reason that you are going to provide a dissenting opinion on something, you have to question the leader or a coworker. If your mission of your institution is student success, how does this particular decision lead to student success? You don't want to get into a more argumentative, conflicting situation whenever you're working with others. You want to put the focus on the problem and not the people. Are you experiencing groupthink at your institution? How are you trying to work through it? Tweet us at, at Higher Ed Jobs or drop us an email at podcast at Higher Ed Jobs. We want to hear what you think. Justin, if folks are trying to find you and have questions for you, where can they find you out on the internet? Well, I welcome everyone to find me on Twitter. I'm at Justin Zackel. That's J-U-S-T-I-N-Z-A-C-K-A-L. People are welcome to connect with me on LinkedIn. Or you can find me on Twitter. I'll, I'll be happy to connect with you. If you just mention that you listen to the podcast, whenever you send me a connection, uh, it'll be great to connect and to share more ideas and hopefully have some productive conflict. And I want to put a plug in for all of Justin's great articles on higher ed jobs. So search for Justin's articles on our site. Thank you so very much, Justin, for spending time with us and sharing. I learned a lot about groupthink and I'm sure a lot of our listeners did as well. We appreciate your time. Thanks for listening.